Romans 11, verses 25 to 36. Tonight, then, we finish the middle section of Romans. Right? You know that it's basically three parts, Romans 1 to 8, and then this section that we've been looking at, Romans 9 through 11, and then beginning on Sunday, chapter 12 and beyond, is the last section that's uh, heavy on application. We've been in this section, chapters 9 through 11. Uh, you could call it, I guess, uh, a parenthesis in this book, right in the middle, that answers the question, what about the Jews? What about God's chosen people? They've missed the Messiah, and now the Gentiles are streaming in. Are, are the Jews God's failed experiment? Are they persona non grata with God? Well, Paul has, he, he did it on Sunday, he's kind of taken us Gentiles aside now, and he's rebuked us not to be high-minded toward the Jews. And he says, verse 25, you ready? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. Paul speaks for me too. That is why I teach. I do not desire that you should be ignorant, brethren. It's true. Ignorant means unaware. Paul says, look, I don't want you unaware of this. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. The word in the Greek is mysterion. It's not a mystery like a whodunit, like um, it can't be figured out. No, it's actually a hidden thing, a secret thing. That is something, it's not something unknowable. It's a secret thing that only the initiated are aware of, right? If you were ever in a fraternity or some kind of secret club, that's what they're saying is Paul is talking about something that only the initiated know about. So Paul says, look, I want you in on this thing that is mysterious to others. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Paul says, I do not want you Gentiles, Christian Gentiles, to be too big for your britches. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Have you ever met anyone like that? Don't look at me. You're all looking at me. A guy who's wise in his own opinion. That is... Maybe you've even said, boy, that guy sure is smart. Just ask him. <laughs> Proverbs is filled. I've, I'm in uh, Proverbs right now in my, my reading time. Proverbs is filled with discussions about this kind of person who thinks that he's already got it all figured out. Proverbs over and over says, look, the wise receive instruction, but fools think they already know it all. Proverbs 26 this morning, it just goes on and on about fools. Listen to the, some of the things I learned in Proverbs 26. Look, you give a fool a message and it's like cutting off your own legs because he won't be faithful to, to send it. Uh, Pro, Proverbs are wasted in the mouth of a fool, Solomon said. Look, if you give honor to a fool, it's like tying a stone to a slingshot. It's going to come back to get you talks over and over about how dumb a fool is. Now listen to Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Did you catch that? So if you think you actually know it all, you're worse than a fool. If you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. If in your own opinion you're already wise, that you don't need a whole lot more wisdom, thank you very much, then you are impervious to wisdom. It cannot reach you. 
your own pride is the force field that keeps all real wisdom out. Right? Application. Right off the bat. Lord, make me humble that I might receive real wisdom. And thankfully, Paul has been keeping us humble lately. Right? I was reading ahead in, in Romans 15, uh, verses 14 and 15. You can just check it out later. He basically says, look, I trust that you guys are, are you're going to get this. You're, you're going to be able to teach yourselves. He said, but I've been really direct with you, really firm with you, because I'm your apostle and it's kind of my gig. So he's been keeping us humble. Verse 25 again. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And here's the mystery. Here's the thing that he wants us, the secret that he wants us in on. That blindness in part has happened to, the, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice he says once again, and we've seen this, blindness in part. Right? That means there's always been, there always will be a remnant of Israel that is getting saved all the time. Interesting, um, on the pastor's list server that I'm a part of, Calvary Chapels, um, I was sent this article this week. It's from uh, Ynet. That's the Hebrew news website. So this is a Hebrew article, okay, uh, written by a Jew. It says, um, some 15,000 Messianic Jews, and so you have to realize the person that's writing this is kind of like, oh, isn't this interesting, okay? Some 15,000 Messianic Jews currently live in Israel, but if you saw one on the street, you would almost certainly fail to recognize any difference. They honor Jewish circumcision, uh, bar mitzvah, and wedding ceremonies, but they believe Jesus is the Messiah, the small community of Yad Hashmona, I guess it is, near Jerusalem, is home to a number of Messianic Jewish families. They believe in Jesus, or Yeshua, as they call him, and in the teachings of the New Testament, as well as the Old. They are Jews in every sense, but for the most part keep this side of the, their faith to themselves. When these families gather for the Shabbat meal, that is Passover, however, Jesus is the guest star at their table. Just an article that came to me this week that where the Jews are looking and going, isn't this interesting? This funny little group of people, 15,000 or so in Israel, the remnant. Paul says, look, I don't want you ignorant of this. There's blindness in part, but there's still a remnant who sees Yeshua as the Messiah. He says, but there's coming a time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in that all Israel will have their eyes opened. Look at it, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, if you hadn't read the, the previous portions of uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, you might think that that means, hey, if you're a Jew, you get into heaven. All Israel will be saved. Well, we have talked about that, and Paul made it very clear. No, there's no such thing as a herd salvation. You don't get into heaven as part of a herd, right? We covered that in chapter 9. Uh, no one gets into heaven as part of a herd. Paul is talking about here an awesome national revival, an awakening to Jesus in the nation of Israel um, and to the Israelis worldwide, okay? Where not just the remnant... But the nation as a whole comes out of blindness to the Messiah, where the scales fall off their eyes. Verse 26. And so Israel will be, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 here. The deliverer, that is the rescuer, will come out of Zion. Paul says once again, look, it, it tells us this in the Old Testament. 
the, the rescuer will come out of Zion and he will turn away, that is, he will turn back or remove ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see the word covenant there? It's going to be important tonight as you go through. Covenant is a contract, right? It's a sacred, unbreakable agreement. Paul says, I don't want you ignorant Gentiles, Gentile brethren, because God has promised the nation Israel that he will send a deliverer to take away their sins, to remove their ungodliness. And one day, when they finally understand, they will get it that their deliverer's name is Yeshua, Jesus. And here's how it will go down. The fullness of the Gentile Gentiles will come in, right? Then the rapture will happen. There will be tribulation. And then listen to the words in Zechariah 12. This is prophesied, okay? You can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. Zechariah 12, verse 9, it says, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Okay? This is at the end of the tribulation. Verse 10, listen to this. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Paul says, I don't want you ignorant of this. There's coming a time when all of the Jews, their eyes will be opened toward repentance. There will be this great restoration of the people of Israel coming to a gracious God. So if you're looking for an outline... I want to point this out for you first. Point number one in an outline tonight would would be this. We're going to talk about God's unwavering commitment. God's unwavering commitment. In our text, in verse 26 and 27 there, it says that God is promising to rescue Israel from their sin. He's promising to do it. Can I ask you why? At this point, why is God promising to rescue Israel from their sin? Is it because they're such an awesome, obedient race? No. They, like we, killed His one and only Son, right? But still it says, look, He's promised to do this because He loves the Jews. Now, why does He love the Jews? Is it because He loves kosher meals? No. It's because of that word, covenant. It's because he made a promise. Point number one is God's unwavering commitment even to unworthy covenant breakers. Look at verse 28. Paul is speaking to us Gentiles about the Jews. He says, concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved For the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul says, look, there's two reasons off the top that I can think of that God's not done with Israel. Number one, his unwavering commitment to the patriarchs, the fathers it says there. And number two, his unwavering commitment to his promises. Now, I want you to notice this. It took me a little while to to see it, but verse 28 Paul is speaking to us Gentiles, right? And when he says they are enemies and that they are beloved, 
He's actually talking about from God's perspective. Look at it. Concerning the gospel, Paul says to us Gentiles, the Jews are enemies of God for your sake. But concerning election, they are his beloved for the sake of the fathers. You could put it this way. Right now, is, excuse me, Israel has a love-hate relationship with God. When it comes to the gospel, the Jews are the enemies of God. In other words, God is not willing that any should perish, right? But that all should come to repentance. So when, when, those, uh, when those Jews went and stoned Paul, when they whipped him on the back because he was sharing the gospel, they were making themselves enemies of, of God in that respect, right? Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake because God loves the Gentiles, okay? But concerning the election, it says, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. You get it? Enemies on one hand, concerning the gospel, that, that God wants to get out, but beloved on the other. You know that word beloved? Check it out. It means, or the, the word is agapetos. We've seen it before. It means little loved ones. It's, it's a term you use for a precious little child. You really can't get more affectionate than that. God says, look, on the one hand, they're the enemies of God. On the other, they are his little agapetos, his little beloved ones. Now, why does God insist on calling the Jews his little loved ones when they whip Paul? Is it because it's just so cute when they whip Paul? No. It's for, it says, the sake of the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac. Jacob. Those are men that God made a covenant with. He made a promise to. Even though for their part Israel has crucified God's only son, their Messiah, God still intends to keep his promise. Look at verse 29. Why? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, because God's unwavering commitment to even commitment breakers. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me. If, if God is really that unwavering in His commitment to commitment breakers, there's, there's hope for me. Let me give it to you on the flip side. If God can wash His hands of Israel, which has been the whole thing we're looking at, is God washing His hands of Israel? Chapters 9 through 11. If he can wash his hands of Israel and give up on them, and let me tell you, they deserve it, then God could wash his hands of me and give up on me. Because let me tell you, I deserve it. You didn't have to say amen there. <laughs> but it's true. It is true. But if God has not given up on them, He's not washed his hands of them with such a long history of rebellion. That means he won't give up on me either. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Apparently, God has an unwavering commitment even to commitment breakers. 
And that makes me want to commit to him all the more. Verse 29, for the gifts, uh, the word is charisma, and it, what it means literally, it's, it's the same word we get grace from. It's a gift given just because the giver is gracious. Okay, For the gracious undeserved gifts, and it says the calling, that is the choosing of God, are irrevocable. Okay, So who God chooses and the, the favor that he rains down upon them are irrevocable. Listen to what that word means. I'll try to pronounce the Greek here. It'll be fun. Ametamelitos. I think I did it. And it means this. Not repentant of or unregretted. The root word, listen, means to regret afterward. Think of buyer's remorse. That's what it's saying. Y'all, this is really good news when you think about it. Think about this. The Bible says that Jesus has redeemed us. That is, bought us. This says that our Redeemer has never had buyer's remorse. Maybe you came in tonight filled with guilt. And rightly so. Maybe you're convinced that when God bought you, He got a limit. This tells me that God has never regretted His grace, His graciousness to you. He's never regretted calling you, choosing you. That is an unwavering commitment to commitment breakers like me. Next, in verse 30 to 32... We've seen God's unwavering commitment. Let's look at God's unexpected plan of redemption. Now again, remember, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles about the Jews. First, I want you guys to notice uh, two words that are said over and over again. It's disobedience and mercy. Let me define disobedience for you. It's stubborn refusal to believe. It's actually more of a belief word than it is uh, an action word. Okay? Disobedience means a stubborn refusal to believe. No, I will not believe. Okay, now mercy. You guys probably are familiar with that. It means it's kindness, though, toward the miserable. Kindness toward the afflicted or the wretched. Okay, I want you guys to notice those two words. You guys read the words disobedient and mercy when we get there. Verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through there, that is the Jews disobedience even so these also have now been that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all so right off the bat you get a sense okay God's got an unexpected plan here unpredictable I wouldn't have predicted this He's using man's disobedience, that is, his stubborn unbelief, to bring about his mercy. I don't know about you, but that those don't seem to go complementary, at least at first glance. He's talking to the Jews, verse 30, or excuse me, to the Gentiles about the Jews, verse 30. He says, for as you were once disobedient... Literally, you once refused to believe. You, you told God, talk to the hand, okay? 
For as you were once uh, disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. And we've seen that, right? The reason that we Gentiles are blessed to be in the family of God is because the Jews rejected it first. Uh, the, the, verse 30, the new Doug version, goes like this. You were once stubborn, but now have obtained mercy through their obstinacy. Get it? Verse 31. Even so, these also, now he's talking about the Jews, have been disobedient. Now they're stubborn, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Okay? Don't get lost in all that. Paul says basically this. He's talking to the Gentiles. And remember, he's trying to keep us from being prideful, right? That's part of what he's doing here. He says, let's review. You Gentiles, Paul says, you started out as wild olive branches, stubborn, rebellious. But you obtained mercy when the Jews refused it, stubbornly. Now, when they see God's mercy poured on you, they'll get jealous and they will seek and find mercy. Get it? Verse 32. For God has committed them all. That is, literally, he's shut them up in or imprisoned them. That's what that word where it says committed. For God has shut them up in or committed them to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. God has shut us all up in disobedience that he might show mercy to us all. Now, I don't know about you. But to me, that's an unpredictable plan. what, what, What God apparently said was, look, I'm going to give all of them over to disobedience so that I can show mercy to all of them. Galatians 3.22 says it a different way. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I don't know if you remember when we were in a... In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Apparently part of God's strategy is to make sure that everybody is guilty and they know it. Verse uh, 32, it sounds backward, but it's, it's genius. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. Listen to what the word mercy means. Um, in the Greek, it's eleos. It means kindness or good, goodwill, excuse me, toward the miserable and the afflicted. To help the afflicted or to bring help to the wretched. Now we go, now why would God make his plan to deliver us all into disobedience so that he can show mercy? Here's why. Mercy is only mercy when you don't deserve it. Uh, Let me put it this way. Grace is only for the wretched. We don't sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a pretty great guy like me. Saved a pretty awesome guy like me. No. Wretch is the only word that fits in that song. Wretch is the only word that allows for Mercy, undeserved favor. Again, Romans 3, Paul told us, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped 
and all the world may become guilty before God. God then has shut us all up in disobedience that we might shut up and receive His mercy. Boy, that's an unpredictable plan. Which leads to our last point. God's unsearchable wisdom. Verses 33 to 36, as he closes this section, it's like Paul cannot contain himself. It's like he gets a glimpse of God's genius, God's unpredictable goodness, God's amazing problem-solving ability. And when I was reading this, all that came to me was this, it's like a fireworks display. Like, he comes to it and it's like God's goodness, right? I mean, a fireworks display, you see, you know it's coming, but you don't know how it's going to look. I see these verses in the same way and like Paul is shooting up praises, right? And he says them and when we start to think about them, we go, ooh, ah. Look at verse 30, 33, excuse me. Oh, the depth. The word literally means the depth of the sea. This is a really big depth. Oh, the depth of the riches. That's abundance of wealth. Both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Boom. Ooh. Ah, right? What is knowledge? Knowledge is information. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied. So not only is God smart with information... But he actually applies it perfectly, right? How many, how many times have we considered this? You know, we keep, this is the information society. Are we all that wise? No. But God, both the, the depth of his knowledge and his wisdom are incredible. Paul says, look, oh, the incredible depth and the abundant riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. It means literally they cannot be effectively investigated. He says, and his ways past finding out. That means you cannot, no matter how hard you try, no matter how smart you are, they cannot be comprehended. I don't know about you, but for me... How appropriate is it that Paul ends chapters 9, 10, and 11 with these words? Chapter 9, 10, 11, all about predestination and man's free will. Paul says, who's going to find out? Who's going to be able to figure this out? No one can figure this out. God chose us from the foundation of the world. We were taught that. And yet, man gets to choose two. Man is responsible for his choice even though God chose from the foundation of the world. Both God's total sovereignty and man's free will. How possibly can both of those be true? Our answer? I don't know. Isn't God awesome? That's what Paul's saying here. Isn't it interesting that we spend all the time debating between uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, God's... Sovereignty, man's free will. In my mind, every debate, if it's biblical, between uh, these two factions, should end the way Paul ends. Who can figure it out? I don't know. That's the way they should end instead of, I hate you and I'm leaving. Right? Paul goes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. And this is not just about uh, predestination. Think about all of the things that Paul has covered in Romans. Um, the examples could go on and on, but let me just give you one, one more quickly. Remember when we looked at uh, the first couple chapters? Remember the dilemma that we created for God? He, God it loves us. He does not want to punish us for sin, but he must punish sin, right? He loves us. He hates sin. What's the dilemma? How in the world can he justify my sinful behavior, let me off scot-free, and still remain a just judge? How can he still remain a judge that's worth his salt if he lets a criminal like me go free? Well, God sent his only Son, the most precious thing, to pay the penalty, right? For me, Romans 3.26 says, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. you get it? Over and over again, we look at this and we go, genius. Man, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's amazing. He's, he's genius. And it's funny because I... Genius sometimes, to me, is the best word to describe it, but it's like so calling God a genius. But you know what I mean. It's like this the only one I can think of. Whoever would have thought of these things? Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Now, who has become his counselor? Y'all, it's supposed to be a rhetorical question. But if I'm honest, when Paul says, who has become his counselor? Sometimes I sheepishly got to go, uh, I've tried to do that. Am I the only one? You're all like, yeah, you're the only one. <laughs> Liars. You ever tried to give God advice? Lord, here's how you can solve my problem. Lord, if you just did this, it would all work out just right. Lord, my counsel for you is that you hurry up here. Oh, I'm not the only one. Okay, see? Anyone else like Peter? Lord, let me take you aside and give you all my great wisdom. We give counsel to a God who we just learned his ways are past finding out. We give him counsel like we're expecting him to go, I am so glad you weighed in. I don't know what I'd do without your wisdom, Doug. And later you find out, oh, look at that. God really did know what he was doing without me. Huh, go figure. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. I think we're going to cover more of this on Sunday, but you, you see the truth in that too, right? God owns everything. Who in the world could claim to put God in his debt? I mean, if you give him everything, you sell all of, let's say you own $10 million. That's your portfolio. Okay, let's make it 20. Might as well. You give all of it to him. You say, God, there it is. There's my great sacrificial uh, gift to you. And he goes, okay, thanks. Wasn't that mine already? 
It's like the the son who gives his father on Father's Day socks, a pair of socks. And he's like, hey, I, I bought you this with my own money. That was my allowance that came from you. Right? It's nice. It's awesome. And, and, and the father appreciates it. But let's not forget who could give God anything and put him in their debt. Verse 36, for of him... And through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's like the, the big firework at the end. Right? Everybody's like watching it, watching it, watching it go. And it's like, ooh, ah, at the very, very end. I, and and we, won't, we won't belabor it, but here's the thing. It, he covers so much in this, that one sentence. He says, look, God is the source of all things. Nothing that was created was created apart from Him. He's the sustainer of all things, where it says through Him all things exist, right? He's the significance of all things. Verse 36, For of Him, that is, He is the source of all things, and through Him He is the sustainer of all things. We've talked about this. Colossians 1.17 says, uh, this is the New Living Translation, I love this. It says, He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together that is if he were to relent if he were let's say god were to just daydream for a second or yawn all of creation would just blow apart for of him and through him and then it says and to him are all things that is he is the significance of all things in other words all things exist for him for his glory for his good pleasure now maybe that's news to some of you you thought you were the center of the universe. No. All things are for His glory, right? To Him are all things. Verse 36. I'm going to let you guys close the night out. You guys get to say amen only if you agree. Okay? Don't say amen if you don't agree. Verse 36. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever.